Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, before we get the show started, I wanted to let you know we are giving away a bunch of brand new black magic gear. Yeah, cameras, switchers, DaVinci Resolve licenses, a bunch of awesome stuff. So stay tuned to learn how you can enter to win free gear from Blackmagic. And we're going to tell you all about it later on in this episode. Now cue the music. Hey, what's up? Welcome to the 109th episode of Just Shoot in a Podcast about filmmaking, screenwriting, and directing. I'm Oren Kaplan. And I'm Matt Enlow. Today we've got Andy Radzewski, commonly known as Andy Riz. On. He's a DP that Oren and I have both worked with. He shot a series for me, just a thing with Oren on the Oscars. And so we kind of dive in deep uh, on the business of being a cinematographer, what he likes and doesn't like in filmmakers, what he's noticed about them that maybe has made them more or less successful. It's a great conversation if you're a DP or if you've ever worked with one before or hope to. So I think that probably covers everybody who listens to the show. If not, let us know because I'm very curious about what you uh, are listening for. If you don't know what DP stands for, Uh, we're not going to give it away. Oh, that's true. You'll have to listen to find out. Cool. Well, before we get into that, what have you been working on lately? um, So... I have been working on a bunch of stuff, but the thing I want to talk about today is uh, I have been working on a short um, that I'm excited to shoot. I think I'm going to shoot it at the beginning of the next month. You know, I'd been noodling on it for a while and uh, just this last week sent it out to a handful of people who had made shorts just recently and who I had a good relationship with and just got all of the notes back, basically. Is it the same one that I saw? Yes. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Oren sent me great notes. Uh, thanks, Oren. And it was really interesting because it's like, you know, I think it's a great little example of how important community building is and how it's important to like read other people's scripts and to have them read yours. And I got great feedback. You know, some of it's hard to hear and some of it's uh, awesome to hear. And I think everybody did a really awesome job of being thoughtful with it. I think I just, my main point is just advocating, like building that circle of people that you can reach out to and have them read your stuff and make sure that you reciprocate is really invaluable because in the back of my head, I kind of knew more or less what needed to be fixed, but sometimes you just need to hear somebody else tell it to you. That was really nice. So I recommend Read other people's scripts, help other people out. It's really great. And how are you going to make this short? Are you just going to pay for it yourself? Yeah, I think I'm going to do it out of pocket. Are you going to shoot it at your place? I I think so. That's the thing I'm debating between doing it at a through a peer space, like renting basically Airbnb uh, an apartment that's already furnished versus doing it at my place. But it's kind of written with my layout in mind. Yeah, it's written to just shoot so it's not super resources heavy. So yeah, I think I'm just going to shoot it. Uh, like maybe Memorial Day weekend, maybe the week after. Cool. Yeah. Well, congrats. I can't wait to see it. Oren. Yes. What have you been working on lately? Uh, I've been developing a lot of stuff. I flew my drone for our friends the other day and I got shut down for the first time. 
by the FSO, the fire safety officer. So he was on your crew. He was on our crew. So if you shoot in the city of Burbank, the permits are really cheap. They're cheaper than Film LA, which is the usual way that you get a permit in LA. Uh, But if you have over 23 people on set, you have to get a fire safety officer. Mm -hmm. You have to pay someone from the fire department to come be with you. And even though we had less than 23 people, including the employees of the place we were at, we were worried we'd be over 23 and they might spot check. So they got this FSO just in case. And he had no idea that you needed a permit for the drone. And neither really did we, since we're shooting like on private property. And I was even showing him the drone, showing him how it works. And he was really excited. He's like, yeah, we want to get one for the fire department because you can like see hills and brush and everything with that. And then we were just chatting for a while. And as soon as they were ready for me, he comes over. He's like, hey, just got off the phone with like the fire captain. He says, you can't fly the drone. It's not on the permit. We talked to the police department. The guy's like, "Uh, does this drone pilot have a pilot's license? And I was like, well, I'm more of like a hobbyist. And they're like, we're not even going to talk to him if he doesn't have a pilot's license. So So then what happened? They just said, like, did they write you a ticket or anything like that? No, they just said you can't fly the drone. So I just left (laughs) and I came home and I Googled how to get a drone pilot license. And it's not that hard, but it is not also not that easy. You have to get a pilot's license. It's only $150 to take the test, but the test is like really hard. Like you need to know like, you know, different altitudes of like airport zoning and communications and all these like weather reports and how to read maps and military zones and restricted areas. And it's, it's involved. So I've been toying with the idea of trying to get my license but I don't know. It's just another thing to add to the list. Uh, if you're going to fly a drone, make sure there's no uh, imp- you know, authorities from the city around. Even if they're on your team. Even if they're on your team. I will not talk about whether I went back there the next day and shot those shots instead. Yeah, I don't know where that uh, drone footage <laughs> ended up coming from then. That's crazy. Um, the other thing is I'm up for this uh, pilot presentation for the E-Network, which I think I talked about last episode. But what was interesting is I got the script and I really loved the script, but uh, my wife who read it thought that it was offensive in in a certain way. She didn't disagree with all of its politics, or she disagreed with some of its politics, basically. Yeah. Is that accurate to say? Yeah. And so I was in this weird situation where she told me that and literally like five minutes later, I got an email saying, you got the job. Um, and so as I, you're getting busted for your drone, actually, as I'm getting busted for my drone thing. Yeah. It was kind Literally, of a depressing day. <laughs> um, but so then I had kind of three options. One is to not take the job, even though I was very excited because it's a pilot and if it gets picked up, I'd, you know, be directing a TV show. Um, number two is to just ignore my wife and take the job and just do this thing. Uh, or number three is to express the concerns about the script to the producer, which by the way, when I say I got the job, it's not like there's a contract or anything signed. It's just an email saying, Hey, the network approved you, which is, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting that the network has to approve the director. I guess it's kind of obvious too, but I have no idea how the network approved me, like what they saw. I'm sure they just Googled you. Yeah, they probably thought I was the guitarist for Gogol Bordello, which is what the other orange <laughs> really? Kaplan oh, does. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, I ended up going with option three and expressing my concerns to the EP. And he was like super receptive. And he's like, thanks for bringing that to my attention. 
So we'll see if I still have the job next week. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I guess even if I lose the job, it's like important to to stand for what yeah. you stand think by about, your beliefs. Yeah. Right? You are what you make. I think it is. So we'll see. Um, so I'll keep you updated, guys. Great catch up, Oren. <laughs> um, before we hop into our conversation with Andy Riz, we have one final piece of housekeeping. Avid listeners will know we uh, launched our Patreon page. So if you want to support the show, hop over to patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. Uh, throw us a couple bucks to help keep the show going and growing and pay our awesome editors because um, we're losing a little bit of cash with each of these episodes and we'd love to break even on it. So check out patreon.com slash just shoot it pod. That's correct. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Thanks, everyone. Okay, here's Andy. Cool. Well, hello. Welcome, Andy Riz, Andy Rudzuski, to the podcast. Thank you. Happy you, to be here. You are a DP that both Oren and I have worked with. I've worked mm-hmm. with you uh, for a million years. Yeah. It's legit been a very long time. And I worked with you for 1,000 years. Yeah, yeah. which is yeah. significantly less. Yes. Yeah, but yeah. still important. In- a thousandth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I worked with Andy for the first time just a couple months ago mm-hmm. on a very small shoot, but I did invent the that helium was, balloon rig on that shoot. I talk about that kind of a lot. Well, thank it you. It was, yeah. It was kind of great. We've that talked about it on the podcast. That two of you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Jealous. Clearly. Um, well, cool. Thanks for coming, Andy. Mm-hmm. We, I think you're the first DP that we've had on the show. That's true. Oh, is that true? Yeah, I can oh. think of plenty that are going to be jealous. Yeah, what up? Um, Aside from director DPs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those don't we don't. We don't have a ton of those, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think every filmmaker originally starts out shooting their own stuff. Yeah, yeah. Until they realize that it's really hard. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Pretty early on. You did one not too terribly long ago, that that like um, beer Rita thing. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. I spec'd something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. The, that no one will ever see, though. Yeah. It's, uh, I feel like I'm one of the few. Yeah, it's yeah. quite terrible. Like to the point where I wouldn't ever show anybody. Yeah, I remember you were asking me if there are a couple shots that are like, should I to put this in my reel or something? <laughs> yeah. And I, I was like, no. no yeah. And shouldn't. I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, good call. Yeah, well, yeah. I think... Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> How little you knew back then. I think the more you direct, the more you realize the importance of the DP. Uh, obviously, for light, you know, to make things look good, but also just how much you need a brain working on what things look like and a brain working on what things feel like, you know, mm-hmm. and especially what the actors are doing. Yeah, no, it's true. I th- and I think that's true of anything. Like, just for me, how important a gaffer, a key grip, my ACs, like, I... Everything that somebody else is doing gives you more energy to do the thing that you should be focusing on. Sure. We, uh, we actually just shot something together over the last two days. And um, you didn't roll yes. um, on our first take because you normally don't have to do that. Yeah, it's been a really <laughs> weird... The last two years have been like... It's been a, 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 a solid ascension, but I realized like... I I still think of myself as like oh I'm I'm scrappy and young yeah. and I do all the things yeah. and I was like oh no yeah, like I'm old and forgetful and other people press all the buttons <laughs> like, right so yeah. for yeah. people point. Yeah. that don't know this that aren't used to working with like big crews usually the first assistant camera person is the person that's hitting telling the second AC where to put the slate 
when to market, when they're framed up, when they're focused, and then they roll the camera. Mm-hmm. And, the and, team- and they're not even near me. Like my first AC is not in <laughs> eyesight. They're yeah. all, it's all you know, wireless, and so they're in a different room, and the camera records and cuts when it does. Like- I, I remember actually, because uh, on a shoot that we were on together, We'd been shooting, this was the series last year, it was eight half hour episodes. So we were together for like a yeah. long time. And I remember the stars of the show, they were on mic, they didn't realize it, and I had my headphones on. Them in the corner, late in the game, we'd been shooting for weeks and weeks, being like, hey, did you know that that person's job is just to keep the cameras in focus? Yeah. Like they just literally didn't know what your ACs were doing at all. Yeah, They're just, just hanging like out. guys in the corner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. It's weird. Filmmaking's weird. Yeah. It's- well, so speaking of uh, director directing and shooting things, we were curious to kind of talk to you a little bit about your relationship with directors and how... Andy just uh, <laughs> sighed heavily. <laughs> yeah. Faces, pupils dilated. Maybe we'll start, we'll start with the negative stuff first. What's, like- yeah, what's a thing that bothers you about directors or, or rather that's not what we mean. We, yeah. What are some things that like maybe some newer directors or less experienced directors or meaner directors, if those exist, easy mistakes to make, I guess is what we're looking for. Yeah. I mean, hmm. I think a a part it's tricky because I, you know, I'm still learning like what I thought I didn't like a year ago. Mm -hmm. I'm now like, Oh, this is it. And so it's like, I'm very surprised. For instance though, was something you thought you liked a year ago. Well, so I, what I said, I would say a year ago, maybe a little more than a year ago, maybe it's two now, where I was fond of saying, you know what, I, I like first-time directors or less experienced directors mm-hmm. because I, they tend to be a little o- like open, um, which is cool. Like I feel like I get ideas in, I guess, a bit more. But then what I so, – so that's great. It's, you know, for the most part that's, that's happening. But now – and I think it's because I've been shooting a lot of series lately and so – the ability to think and adjust live is such a big deal. I think it's one of the most important, I mean, in filmmaking in general, but in series, the page count is so high and you're doing it every day and things change constantly. And I think for less experienced director, uh, directors, they can't as quickly, they just don't have the experience to be like, oh, we can cut the shot because I can, and it's really, it's pre-editing, I guess, is a big part of it, is that I... You know, I came up doing really small stuff where I do everything myself. And I, in hindsight now, realize that the editing part is one of the most valuable as a DP is because I can very quickly be like, oh, instead of this shot, we can go here and you can cut at this point. Like when they open the refrigerator, you can cut on that act. Like I can pre-edit, but some directors can't keep up with that if they're Mm -hmm. less experienced. And so and they're like, what are you talking about? Like, why would you do this? Yeah. The, the shot gets ruined. In this yeah. Point. And so you end up shooting a lot of extra and time is so important on these series that you shoot. You're like, we, we don't need this angle. We don't need this whole scene at this angle. Like we, mm-hmm. you, you're really trying to figure out how you can spend less time everywhere, right. really. And especially knowing we have a big scene later. Let's not, this is a, like a, a one eighth of a page here. Let's not spend three hours getting this. Right. So, so efficiency and um, prioritizing more important things kind of have become more important to you as your page counts have gone up. Yeah, absolutely. And I would love for my page counts to go down. Like I, I'm dying to do another feature just so I can like, although you know, who knows what size that feature would be. But I, 
that's really the killer. Is it's it's just the boss of everything is really what it is. Right. And so there's some confidence that more experienced directors have in knowing what's going to make it into the cut and what isn't and trying to not shoot what they know is not going to make it into the cut. Yeah, exactly. And I think, and, and, you know, I I wouldn't want to say that it's across the board, like some younger directors, because there's trust. That's another thing is like different directors, you earn their trust or you don't, or they inherently will trust you or not. And like, I don't, I think part of now I've been on these series. And so when a director comes in to direct episode four or whatever, sometimes I'll see a little resistance. Like they come in with a plan and they're like, let's do it this way. And I'm, I'm pretty good. Like I'm not, but it's helpful if they trust me when I'm like, Hey, you know, we don't need this other side. I'm happy to get it. If you want it, we're in, but I think you have this scene and I think we can go, this time is better spent somewhere else. And, but that's, that's more personality because there are some experienced directors that are, I guess rigidity is one of the big things. Uh, and that is, I think that's just a killer in filmmaking period. I don't know how you guys feel about that, but like, like Matt, I've worked with you a bunch and you're pretty good at being able to adjust as we go. Or we just did one and it was interviews. So like not a ton, although you did invent the, the, the balloon. Not only did I invent the balloon, but I think you and I on the fly changed the entire location. Oh, that's right. Cause when we showed up, it they had changed. That's right. Yeah. And, and to not, to not panic when that happens, that's a big one. Is like, oh, everything's different from how we planned it. So, okay, well, let's do it this way then. And some some people can't do that. And I think that's hard for everybody. Let me ask, though, because I think Oren and I both relate on the fact that sometimes we're so good at shooting from the hip or being flexible or understanding the circumstances and shooting around it that I think we both get a little bit of anxiety about not... Um, insisting on our vision sometimes when we wish we had. Have there been instances where someone, a director has been a pain in the butt and then you've seen the footage and been like, oh, or the edit and been like, oh, I was wrong. This was worth it. That's, there have definitely been, I'm trying to think of a specific example. I know that one place that it happens, because I take, um, I take, like taking care of the crew is very important to me. And so what on series work, that really means um, hours, you know, like I, I really don't want to go into overtime. Uh, and if you do, like, I want to keep it short and it's not just, you know, want to save money or whatever, but really it's because when you're on a long shoot like that, I've seen people work their crews too hard, too early. And then for this whole second half of the series, the crew is checked out. Like they, they don't care anymore. And you know, it's different. Like when you're director, DP, there's investment on our side. Like I want it to be good. It's good for me if it's good. It's good for you if it's good. But, you know, a grip, like they're, they're, they were working, you know, way more than we are. They're shooting way more jobs. And so if it's just brutal and it's like, oh, we're changing, we're going into four hours of overtime like three times a week or whatever, like they're going to mentally check out. Sure. And then the work or literally drops. check out. Right or literally, or yeah, right. or just stop coming. Like th- that happens. And I, so that said, there have been times when I feel like we have it and it's, we can call the day. And somebody's like, now this, you know, usually we're, I'm on the same page. I've been very fortunate. But like there are times where they're like, you know, we're, we're, let's go get this. Like let's go get it. And I'm like, I don't know. And then we go and we get it. And like, that was great. 
like that. And it's, and it's usually like an establisher or some kind of or setting up like a jib thing, something that I'm like, this is time consuming and do we need it? Right. Well, but, a big struggle in filmmaking, I think, is balancing like the minimum we need to tell the story, which is mm. pretty easy to get. Right. And then the minimum we need to tell the story in an interesting and unique way and kind of elevating, plussing the whole thing, right? Mm-hmm. And Matt and I talk about this all the time, right? It's so easy to come into a scene and do like a two shot and two overs and call it a day, but there's not not a lot of filmmaking that goes into that, right. you know? Yeah, th- that's a tricky one too because efficiency is... I just shot a series where it was like such a tight schedule we did not have a lot of resources and this was a director I'd never worked with before. And we talked about that going in. We're like, you know, I had just come off a bunch of series where we were de- we were designing a lot of oneers and like really like dollies and hiding zooms and really getting getting fancy with our designs. Uh, but it took time to do that. Like you, not only to set it up, but also to plan it. Like it wasn't we showed up on the day and we did it. This was all everything ahead of time, shot listed pretty there's a particular director who you guys have had on the show, sure, sure. Charles Hood. Uh, we, Night Owls, episode two. Yeah, yeah, early, <laughs> early. Sure. Uh, but with, with you know, a lot of directors, that's what it is. You come in and there isn't time and you're like, yeah, yeah, I guess it's a two shot and two overs. Sure, we've and done that a million times. A million times, yeah. yeah. And I think what, what I did on this last series, knowing that was going to be a part of it, uh, I really leaned into lighting. I love lighting. And one of the downsides of doing oneers and all that is it's a lot trickier to light because you're lighting for a close-up at the same time as a wide and you kind of are trying to find your spots. And the nice thing about doing a two and a couple overs in theory is that you can take a little time to light it. And so I went a little more style, stylized. I went darker and they were all into it, the, both the, the executives and the director, luckily. Uh, but that was for me, that's one of those spots where it's like, okay, this is a way to elevate the look, mm-hmm. but still stay in this sort of, you know, simple build, I guess. Right. Yeah. Have you ever had a director like want to do a really complicated camera move and you tell them, you know, if we just did this as two separate shots, it would be like 10 times easier. Yeah, it, I, I'm still figuring that balance out. I have had, I had um, a less experienced director, but a very experienced writer um, directing some scenes. And they were very eager to do a ton of fancy camera moves. They were like, I really want to like, I, and they, that was a big discussion with us constantly right they're like i'm gonna put my director hat on now. yeah yeah and we t- and we t- luckily we had a good relationship so like i could i you know and I've, it's my job too like i'm not i'm not well, well let me ask is it is was it overly ambitious because of schedule or because tonally it was trying too hard it, it was a little bit of both. It was a little bit of both. The the schedule part was my priority. Is I I was what I what I say all the time uh, to directors is the higher the number of shots, the less good each shot will look. And so I did try to combine because it wasn't. It was it was that he was trying to do too much movement um, in spots that didn't need a ton of movement, but also the shot count was high. 
so it was trying to figure out like, okay, we can still have movement, but instead of, you know, you get a shot of somebody uh, entering a room. So there's a shot on the door and then they're talking to somebody across the room. So that's, you know, a shot on the other side of the room. And I'm like, okay, well, if you want some movement, and this is something I'm fond of doing because it, it kind of livens up a scene. It's either two sort of static shots or you let them come into the door and the, the camera pans across the room. So you see the whole geography, which in theory eliminates a wide. You take it across, you see who they're talking to, and it stays there. So, so if you follow me, so you start on the door, camera pans across to somebody, say, sitting in a chair, and then you bring in a second camera that then goes back to the person on the door. And so it becomes a very classic cross shoot. But you're, you're, in theory, you can eliminate a, a wide because you see the whole space. It adds a little movement to the whole thing, which it, you know helps keep it alive so it's not fully static. And then, you know, maybe somebody's moving and you, you slide a little with them or whatever. But right. it's like things like that where you just try to compromise. It's still low shot count, but it gives you a little bit of that life. And I love those shots. I always like see them in like cool films and wish that I did more of them but that shot where you see someone walking in you see them seeing something and then you're like revealing yeah yeah and that there's, what they're doing and but the camera move is like motivated by the blocking also yeah um, but it's so you know because I feel like I just always fall into this spending so much time setting up this wide shot that by the time we're trying to like yeah. do those types of camera moves it's like too late and yeah I mean, it also you know, depends on the of language of the project, right? Like, I think sometimes you have the luxury to be able to call the shots a little bit more uh, figuratively in terms of, like, whether you would keep that sort of traveling time or not. Yeah, on, I think like, that's a network TV that the pan would get cut. You right. just, you, it would just be two crosses, basically, is what would happen, even if you shot it. Mm-hmm. You just look like an asshole for wasting an extra 15 minutes worth of time setting that stuff up that got cut. Well, on Mad Men, they would keep it. Which sure. I guess is not network TV. So who's calling the shots? Matt Weiner, right? So uh, Andy, you should try working for him. Well, I thought it was you know, Matt Weiner. Schedule thing. Is it Weiner? I think it's Weiner. Okay. I would imagine that even if it was Weiner, it's Weiner now. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That sure. would be my thought. Um, so are you ever in situations where you're like about to shoot a scene and the director comes up to you and says, "So Andy, how should we cover this?" Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's it's you know. Uh, <sighs> Last year, I shot the bulk of my year. There was the show I did with you, Matt, uh, in the middle of, which was uh, summer, so like uh, six weeks. Um, but other than that, I shot with Charles a lot. And that he's, he's a very unique director. Uh, and I felt my game get elevated by him because he's very, I don't want to say demanding because he's really gentle, but like he, he is very camera oriented. Mm-hmm. And so he really wants to design interesting shots and it was a lot more work like a lot more yeah yeah he never said hey andy hose it down (laughs) no that didn't didn't come up charles if you're listening try that out (laughs) when what do you mean by hose it down i I think hose it down in the worst case scenario means like we're not going to think too hard about this the blocking is two characters are going to walk in they're going to say the things they say to each other and then we're going to leave so like, let's find a transition in, let's establish the geography, let's shoot their faces and see, and that that is it, basically. That's what I mean when I say hose it down. Yeah. I mean like, hey, we have an hour and a half to shoot this scene. I think of hose it down as, as that 
plus, well, we need two sizes here, maybe three. You know what? We also need an insert on the hands because that's what, that's, I would say of all the things, that's what drives me the most crazy is because no decisions are being made on set and that's where I'm doing the bulk of my work. And so I'm not saying it's wrong. It just doesn't interest me. And it's, but they're building for the edit. They're, they're, they want, it's, which is, I work with a lot of directors that are more comfortable in the editing room than they are on set. And so I try to help them get more comfortable. But if we're just hosing it down, if we're getting everything that you can get, I need an insert here and I need an insert here. I need it. Like, I need this, I need that. I'm just like, you know, I can't light for any of these. Uh, it, like, I don't know how you're going to cut the scene together. So I can't put motion anywhere because somebody could get lost. Like it's, that that's I would say currently that's my least enjoyable thing. Sure, yeah, I've you, definitely been guilty of that. Being oh, like man, we, yeah. we have like a nice medium close up on a thirty five, and I'm like, we have a hundred too, right? Wouldn't it look yeah. really nice on a hundred? Let's just do in one more take on the hundred. Yeah, uh, which you know, I mean, it's it's not wrong. Again, like it's not wrong. No, but, but it's like it's, let's build, let's gather options as opposed to let's have a plan. Yeah, and also because it's it's also to save. Like the the a close up on a on a hundred like that's beautiful. Who who doesn't like that? But I I like to bring that up a lot because everybody, especially directors, who maybe don't work quite as much when they see some of those things like, oh that's beautiful, which it is. And so it's like, well let's do that. Let's do that as often as we can. And I'm like, well you know save it. Like if you really fall in love with something, like choose the moments for that. Sure. I bring that up a lot. Yeah. Like this you're not wrong. This would be cool, but if we do it in every scene, you're going to get bored of it. It just looks like, well, it looks like Riverdale. It's <laughs> which is kind of what where it works. Oh, so, so I saw only the pilot of the Riverdale because you recommended it. Pretty and it was beautiful. Yeah, oh, it, oh yeah, like, I'm not shitting on it at yeah. all. <laughs> the exact opposite. Yeah. But you do um, sometimes see like people like directing comedy stuff and they're fall in love with this hundred millimeter yeah. lens and like nothing really is quite that funny. <laughs> Everything's a little too dreamy. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's an interesting one too, is comedy, like comedy and wides like this. Like I have like, I mean, that's maybe a whole other can of worms, but th- how do you shoot a particular genre? Like what are, what are actual rules and what aren't? Mm-hmm. And like that, that thing of, com- I mean, it, it, but it's so much of it has to do with obviously script actor tone. But well, I, I was going to get at, I think that sometimes the thing that gives you that anxiety, the hosing it down of like getting all of the options, building for the edit. I think that um, from my perspective, because I've done that plenty of times before, I'm guilty of that for sure. And I think that oftentimes it's, e- it's one of two things. It's either not having a plan, which sometimes, you know, Absolutely. you don't have. But then the other thing is, is there's a little bit of anxiety of like not being the decision maker. You know, you mean the DP has that anxiety? No, no, no. As a director, you're gathering rather than composing because, oh, because you, you know have a client. you have a client or an EP or something like that, and you know, EPs oftentimes have an expectation of having options. You know, kind of your job when you're doing, you know, a gig for uh, an executive or a producer. It's like you know, they're going to be like, oh, I want it differently. And if you didn't get the thing that accommodates for that new decision, then you didn't do your job. And so I wonder if when you're kind of deciding to work with someone or not or take a project or not, do you ever 
think of like how many people are, are, how many cooks are in the kitchen or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's also, it's like, honestly, it's pretty new that I'm choosing jobs. Like before it was like, oh, you're a job. Yes, I would like that. Mm -hmm. Like, and so now it's recent that I'm, I'm debating between gigs. Um, and I've been pretty fortunate that the shows I've been shooting, there isn't a ton of executive mm -hmm. like involvement. True. Yeah, I mean, you've been doing a lot of digital series and they yeah. tend to be a little more hands-off in a way that's fun. Yes, and yeah. and like we've definitely taken advantage of that. Like that's been great. But that said, like I've shot some some commercial work and I'm very familiar and I try when it seems appropriate, I'll get involved, like I'm friendly with the executives. I want them to feel comfortable with me too. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, always, always, obviously like the director is the, is the go-to, but like if I, especially on series where directors come in and out, I'm a consistent voice there. And I, for the most part, like I'm a pretty friendly guy. I take my work very seriously. So I, if I can build trust with the executives, sometimes that really does help because I can sometimes like that, that idea of a close up. It's like, they always want a close up, especially if there's a name in it. Like, well, you're not done with the scene. Like we got to go get close-ups, and usually I'm like, yeah, all right, well, sure, here, sure. here we go. But if all we're right, behind, team, slap on that hundred. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you know, there are times where I try, I want to be involved when it's appropriate with any decision maker on a show, and I always I realize I know where I sit in the hierarchy, and that like my ego doesn't get in the way of that, and I think that helps a lot some when when there are those kinds of decisions is that I'll be like look I'm going to get whatever you want but I think if you skip this now and then we go get ahead on this other scene we can make that better and make and so right. it's the balance I try to find with it but you know there are a lot of cooks in these kitchens these days I know in TV it's like the, the editors the producers everyone really 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 appreciates like a single on each character in the scene you know when yeah. I did even I, a clean single. Yeah. yeah. So I had a friend that did all these Hallmark movies and they would weigh up, they had like 200 page scripts and they would cut out entire characters or people out of those movies. And they demanded that you had a clean single on each character so that you could cut an entire character out of a scene if you needed to. That but, freaks me out that <laughs> I've had I have friends who, you know, have had, I've been lucky that I haven't had that experience yet, but I'm sure it's coming. And like that, now that's it. Shooting close-ups are, are kind of nice. Yeah. Actors tend to be good-looking. Yeah, like it's yeah. like they're you know. It's yeah, I did a Lifetime movie, and that the biggest compliment that the producers paid me is like, "You get a lot of coverage. We love. We hate directors that don't get a lot of coverage." <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, thank you. Cool. And they're like, "This doesn't. This looks shaky." Also, <laughs> like, yeah, it's a thriller chase movie. <laughs> There's some handheld shots. Sorry. Um, oh, weird. Yeah, but. Uh, so you touched on something earlier that we wanted to talk to you more about, which was, uh, you know, shooting wide for comedies and different things. Like, how? What are some of the visual tools you have to to be a storyteller in terms of choosing lenses, in terms of camera movement, in terms of lighting? What are what are some kind of tricks that you like to do to to try to uh, convey emotion and story that isn't just about the dialogue? 
That is a very difficult question no. to yeah, answer. Yeah, sorry, concisely. it's super vague. Um, but no, I mean, I can, I can. There are certain things. I'll ramble a little, and you guys can guide me as you see fit. But like, I, I have a resistance to rules. Like, if somebody tells me this is how you do a thing, I, I immediately feel like I want to break that rule immediately. And what's been great is because of the day and age we're in, there I can now point to shows that break every single rule, and. It, I always prefer, I'm like, like changing aspect ratios in a show is a thing I've been wanting to do forever. And everyone's like, well, no, you can't do that. And then a couple shows came out that did it. And so I could well, point what's to the that. Wes Anderson movie? Um, yeah, yeah, Grand Budapest. Yeah, Grand yeah. Budapest Hotel. It's like all different aspect ratios. I don't care for that, actually. Yeah. It's, it, oh, for the aspect ratio change or for that movie? It, in that movie, I don't care for the aspect ratio change. Yeah. And it's fair. very overt, but, you know. Yeah. It's a little uh, jarring. I, I, but I bet don't people that don't care about aspect <laughs> ratios don't even notice it. Yeah. yeah, well, that's the thing. That's what... I, I, you can get away with everybody mixes everything now. Like you can get away. I'm not saying you should do it, but I it's it's cool that it's no longer bananas to try that kind of thing. Like I like and you know so go, going backwards a bit to so like comedy. Um, I wanted to, I shot a series called Take My Wife a couple of years ago, and the director and I wanted to shoot a two three five aspect ratio, so like very wide screen, you know, black bars top and bottom, and they were, everyone was like, like, we just got very quick no's. Like, no, 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 no. And then I, I, I composed a nice email and then I went around and looking around, but Master of None had just come out, which is that aspect ratio. And as soon as I had a popular example. Also like a, a really clean comp. Like Take My Wife would love to be as popular as exactly Master of None and kind of in very clear ways, like oh, it's trying. It's like an established comic trying to do something cool and artsy, and also groundbreaking. And for the record, take my wife up. is told from a female point of view, right? Correct. Yep. Just so people yeah. don't think you're doing Rodney Dangerfield <laughs> stuff here. I mean, I'm, I would also be happy to do some Rodney stuff, but yes. <laughs> yeah. But I will say, I keep resisting the idea of comedy in wides. That that comedy has to. But you don't like it in a wide. I, no, well, th- that people would tell me, like, no, no, we have to be wide because it's comedy, and and so just because of my my nature of like I don't like rules, I'm like, no, nah, we're gonna do it all in close-ups. But then as time has gone on, I'm like, yeah, all right, wider like is wide, better. Wide is nice. Yeah. yeah, it's it's. But it, but again, there are no rules. It all depends. And I, I really find comedy in particular actually is it's actor dependent. Like if you get somebody who's a performer, like if if I was shooting Stephen Wright. Uh, that you know, he's not doing a ton. He mm-hmm. has a great face and it's delivery. So I was like, oh, you could shoot close-ups with him, you know, like for sure. for comedy. The effect is in, I mean, in theory. But really, a lot of comedic. Like I, I shoot a lot with Ben Schwartz. Sure. And, and he he's John Ralphio. Yeah. And he's um, who directs as well. He directs he dir- and, and stars. And yeah. Most of his stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well. Yeah. All the stuff I've done for him. Yeah. Uh, and. He uh, he's a great improviser. Like he's like a thoroughbred. Like he and so being wider for improvisers is a big deal because it helps me if they make a decision to move left, move right. 
I'm not chasing them. And, you know, the longer the lens, the harder it is to stay on something. And so when you're wider, you can quick, you can adjust on the fly, which is something like I take a lot of pride in is I don't like actors being locked in. I I like to give them, you know, we put down some marks, not always, uh, which is hard on my ACs, but I'm like, we're going to light for the space. There's going to be, you know, the areas we want them in and different actors have a different skill level for feeling the light. Um, But I want them to be able to make decisions on the fly and I will adjust. And like, it's really hard on my crew, my ACs in particular. I make, I mean, the show that I shot with you, Matt, it like, that was a very unique show. Like that was, but we were making decisions as we were rolling all the time. All all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Marks were a bit of a joke in in that show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They stayed sharp. It was fun. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. It was crazy. But so do you think like uh, if you're shooting a comedy, you'd rather be like on, on a wider lens and closer than on a longer lens and farther back? Well, so that is a thing. There's a great story that I heard um, about Misery, the, the Kathy mm-hmm. Bates, Stephen, Stephen King, King thing. Um, so Sonnenfeld, who went on to be a, a big director, but he, he was telling Reiner, who's a very successful director, he's like, hey... I have this idea that as the movie, when we start, we're on um, longer lenses on Kathy Bates, and then as it goes on and her crazy is revealed, we get wider and closer. And Reiner was like, no, 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 no. We have Kathy Bates. Like, we don't need to worry about any camera trickery or whatever. And so uh, Sonnenfeld did tests and shot exactly what he was talking about. He's like, this is a longer lens, then we're slowly moving in, and we get wider, and, and it distorts faces and he showed it to Reiner who like had been in the industry since he was a teenager yeah like he and he was like oh the camera is a tool (laughs) and it blew my mind but but then you know I'm a camera nerd so for me like I I know some of these things almost inherently at this point so that kind of stuff really, and Cohen Brothers with with Deacons, that's something they do a lot. Um, their close-ups are a little different. Is there? They tend to be on like a twenty-seven to a thirty-two, which is on the wide side, and they don't do dirties. They'll they'll get in between the actors and shoot clean close-ups. But there is something in that that it it gives it like a it's lightly distorted, just very barely. Like it's not necessarily a flattering lens, uh, and it gives it this odd, slightly otherworldly feel. And it's part of, I mean, there's a lot that goes into making a Coen Brothers movie feel like a Coen Brothers, but that's part of it, is that you're seeing people like with this slight edge of oddness to them. Right. It's not built for beauty. I think it's also, there's a thought of like, it's a little tighter on the eye line as well, which is nice. Mm. I think that's another point to me. I I I, I always feel like there's this like subconscious feeling that even though nine out of 10 people watching a shot wouldn't be able to tell you, you can, there's a f- different feeling when the camera is close to the actor and when it's far away, even if it's the exact same, like things, the exact same things are on the edges of the frame. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, uh, 
we have eyeballs, right? Like, like the way that you see something far away is different than the way that you see something close up, right? So, like, there's well, the, but we only have one lens. Sure, that's true. But but two we, lenses. Yeah, I guess that's two true. identical lenses. <laughs> but my point is though that we have like an inherent understanding of the way that lenses work and the way that they affect um, objects as you're closer or further away from them. Do you know what I mean? And so, like, and also we use cameras constantly. So, like, you inherently know what something feels like if it's zoomed in or on a telephoto lens than something that's wide and close. You know what I mean? Like it, to, to your point of it being a subliminal thing that people understand inherently. I would also say that um, a lot of my work is aimed at the subliminal and the subconscious. Mm-hmm. Like I think a big part of what I'm doing, no one registers, or I shouldn't say no one, but people aren't registering consciously. And a lot of those things are on my end conscious, but aren't designed to be noticed. But I really believe in that. Like, that That is actually a great example is like wider close-ups. Like that has a big effect. Like I notice that. Like if you look at a director like Terry Gilliam, who he does that, when I first like he, that's not subconscious. Like that's sure. like yeah. you, you see that. That's when you first right. realize what a wide angle that's, lens does in a close up. Exactly. That's yeah. exactly what happened. And so when I first saw that, I was like, "This is weird. I like it." And then very quickly, when I was shooting like student films and I tried it, I was like, "Oh, this is weird. Like this isn't <laughs> right. appropriate." So like, but it the, also affects like the actors, right? You know, there's like the directors that set up like a real emotional, truthful scene and just like get as far away from it as possible and trying to shoot it from far away. And then there's the people that are like, hey, you're, this is a performance and we're going to be as close to you as possible. And I think the acting is like affected by that big time, you know? Yeah. And I think I, that's something I, I do work a lot with. I actually just went in on a meeting and that was one of the big things I talked about is I, one of the things I take the most seriously on set is creating a really nice space for actors to to do their work, but also right, to like feel... Like a trailer and like good craft <laughs> service and stuff. Yeah. So I bring, I try to bring the best snacks. Uh, but like I, you know, I hire my crew, obviously like, I, you know, skill is important, but I hire my crew for attitude and atmosphere. Uh, like it's kind of my top priority, but I, you know, and I talk to them about it. I talk to the crew. I'm like, look, like I want, I want to be relaxed, like be careful the way you talk to actors. Like I want actors to get cozy and then fail. Like that's ultimately what mm-hmm. I want is I want to build a space where people feel real comfortable being uncomfortable. Like the, the, because it, it's ultimately as much as I like my side of the job, I love lighting. I'd love to, like we were talking about it, how I'd love to just shoot product shots for a week sure. just because it's just like, oh, I just, just worry about lighting for a while. Ultimately, like I understand that the actor's face is what everybody's bonding to. Like viewers, mm-hmm. that's what people are looking at. Uh, and that's what they want to look at. So like, I want to make sure that they feel uh, incredibly comfortable. Right. Well, speaking of being uncomfortable, um, I <laughs> wanted to ask you a question that I didn't think of until just now. And I wonder Ooh, if you boy. have a good answer. I am ready for <laughs> this. Or so you've worked with a lot of different directors at this point, right? I'm you assu- want to know if you're my favorite? No. Okay. I'd rather not know. Uh, <laughs> but I'm assuming some of them have gone on to greatness, done mm. big you know, studio projects or TV shows, and I'm assuming some of them don't direct anymore. Uh, and I, I guess I'm curious if you've seen any pattern, uh, since we're kind of a director-oriented podcast, and the directors that really succeed, like what 
skills they have, or you could say that it's just totally random and they just had a good idea at the right time. Yeah, boy, that's a really good question. I mean, for sure, like the the sort of boring, but but one aspect is certainly hustle. Like there is, there are, you know, there are people who just try harder to get work and all that. But honestly, uh, I and I've been thinking about this a lot because it's it's part of what affects my side of the job when I'm working with them. But directors who like make, um, I I always call it just I refer to it as bold choices. Like there's, and and it doesn't mean it's right. It doesn't mean it's great, but they they take some risks. They're making. So would you say it's passion or it's just looking for ways to be original? Yeah, I would say more original. I would say like passion is a thing um, for sure. It makes a big difference, but it's something about, and you know, I don't want to, like I've worked with a lot of directors for sure. I work with a lot of directors, but I don't want to, like I'm still learning this. It's a great question that I like, I'll, I'll come back every two years and re-answer because it's fascinating to me to see. But I really think a big part of it is there's something unique about what, like I, there's a director who I work with, um, Sam Zwiebelman, and he, I did a web series with him for no money. I didn't. I had. I had like a little bit of an attitude, even when he asked me to do it, because I was. I was starting to get busy at the time, and he was like, "I have this thing. We have no money. It's gonna. You're gonna get one person as your crew." Yeah. And when when you say no money, you li- very literally mean zero, literally no zero money. Dollars. I think. I think we had. Like I think we had hundred fifty dollars <laughs> <Yeah>. to like. <laughs> it was tiny. You know, everybody's coming in and doing mm-hmm. favors. You're bringing your camera and your gear and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, in my mind, we shot for like a week or more. I think it was a two or three day shoot, maybe four, but I think it was two or three, like very, and it ended up being um, a wonderful experience, but also that web series, this time, like, like, and when I say web series, like people are like, oh yeah, yeah, I, you know, a lot of these digital series, like one of the episodes is 40 seconds long, like it's very short. Uh, but we, we talked about it. That's where I start. Sam and I started talking about bold choices. Like that phrase came up. We were like, let's lean into our limitations and make some bold choices. And I remember, I mean, I won't, but there was literally a shot. And I think about it all the time where I had a pitch on the day. I was like, we're shooting somebody's on the phone. It opens an episode. And then he comes over to turn on a, a speaker, right? And I was like, you know, we can follow him. We can shoot a close-up of him on the phone and then come over here. I was like, what if we started down on the table on the speaker and he's pacing in the background out of focus for the whole conversation? And we hear the conversation, but we don't go anywhere until he comes up and hits the speaker. And it was just my pitch, and I was pretty sure the answer would be no. But he was like, yeah, fuck it. Let's try it. And so we did it. And I kept being like, he's going to ask for coverage. He's going to ask for coverage. And he didn't. And it was like, a re- it just was a unique opening. It fit the scene. Like I wasn't just doing it to be lazy. Like it was like, you know, it's about him coming over to kick up, turn on the music and kick off this montage. And he said that after that, when, after that series, and he got like, he got a lot of attention. He would t- took a lot of meetings after that. And he said in his meetings, people kept saying like, oh, you made, what we love about this is you made choices everywhere. They, they weren't saying like, oh, it's genius because they were just like, there were choices. And you see so much, especially with like short form comedy, like college humor and all that. It's it's what we were talking about earlier. It's 
standard coverage they're finding in the edit and what because or they're cutting jokes out right. or like they need to pay something up yeah but you can't do that if you don't have coverage. yeah which yeah. to be clear the flip side is very true like yeah. i've shot scenes where then the director's texting me is like oh man we messed up we need <laughs> like i got nothing to cut to and this is so boring a scene and we're just so like it's not it doesn't, it doesn't mean always like, work. Yeah, right. But, but that's why it's a bold choice. Exactly. It's yeah, because yeah. it's dangerous. Yeah. yeah, and I really like that is the thing that I seem to notice tends to get attention, and especially now. Like I felt this way. This was like two, three years ago. I started really thinking about that and leaning into that as often as possible. But now, because there's so much content out there, I feel like it's more valuable than ever mm-hmm. because there's just. It's a way to stand out. It's a way to, I mean, I'm obsessed currently with Atlanta. Like I talk about it all the time. Like I, I don't think I can get through an hour without talking about it. Uh, and that's, that's just full of bold choices. And a lot of it is coverage. And I, coverage is one of the things I think about the most specifically because I've been shooting series. And so it's like, that's where you're making a ton of your time decisions. And there are so many shots that they're not like fancy wonders with movement. There's actually very little movement in that show. But they're just, it's a shot, and there'll be something in the background out of focus, and you can kind of see a shape, and they'll play it for comedy, and they never rack to it. You don't cut to it. And then, like, the whole, and then that shot, that scene's done. Like, it's one shot, static, and it's bold. Mm-hmm. And it's not for yeah. everyone, but it's, yeah. So Andy told us that he was trying to convince these producers to shoot this show 235, and they didn't believe it until he showed them how it works on Master of None. And to me, that's like, I haven't quite mastered this yet, but the new method is pitch a bold idea and then shoot a test. And or then back sh- it up with a successful comp. Yeah, well, if, it's, if there's a successful comp, then it's not really your bold idea, <laughs> um, right, as much. Right. Well, but, but Master of None is similar to Take My Wife in so much that it's a com- comedy starring a comedian. That is where the similarities end. And yeah. the aspect ratio. <laughs> yeah, right. But I guess, I guess proving to the money people or the clients or whoever that your crazy idea will work, is that's a huge part of your job, right? That's how you get hired to do work. And so if you are going to pitch a bold idea, it's not unfair of them to ask you to prove that it'll work before they spend the money on it. Right. And if you can't prove it, then they'll want you to just do the stuff that's always worked instead. I talk about it every once in a while, but like I shot... Of what, there's a director, Maria Mattioli, who um, she, the first feature I was ever hired for, she hired me for it, and like people told her not to because I didn't have experience, uh, and she did. She was right, and she, <laughs> they were right. They, and I ruined the movie. Um, but they, I shot the way that she found me is I just went out and I shot. I borrowed uh, our friend Kevin Kevin's uh, camera. And went up to Humboldt to play where I went to grad school, and I was just like, I just want to shoot this like slow motion. It's like really, it's like a, f- a fashion film, I guess, but except it wasn't for anything. It's just like I want to shoot this, you know, like a, a girl walking through tall grass. Like really, I mean, pretty like cliche thing, honestly. Uh, but it's something I just wanted to shoot. I went up, I did it, and she saw it and hired me to. She was like, Oh, I'm about to shoot. How did she see it? She, we shared mutual friends. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how she saw it, actually. I just, like, it was something I posted on Vimeo, and 
I would, I guess, friends of friends. I, mm-hmm. I honestly. This clip didn't go viral or anything no, like that. No. It was like, on, it's like 15 views. Yeah. Like I mean, I posted it to Facebook. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like it's, and, and I think it's, you know, cause that's another thing that I, I've really been appreciating over the years is, uh, the, this, the network, the web of connections that you have to everybody and you never know who's going to see a thing or recommend a, a thing. Like I've gotten so many jobs through friends of friends of friends. It's like, Oh the, yeah, the Andy. Oh, he, he's, he's a nice guy. Like you can, and I get calls from people I've never heard of. And it's like, how did you, I, sometimes I haven't asked, but it's like, I have no idea how some of them found me, but often it's some weird, like, Oh, this friend of a friend saw this thing and you were the DP. So in this case, literally a friend of a friend saw your video of this woman walking through the grass. She was like, oh, I think you're good. And was that that? It was, it was specifically that she was about to shoot a project that she, she saw that and said, oh, I want it to look like that. Mm. Uh, and so it was just pure coincidence. Like, I, you know, I didn't know. I'd, I had met her. Like, we, because like we, she she's, lives up in Humboldt, and that's where I went to school. So, um, But it was, I think about it a lot because in a way, that really kicked everything off. That started my relationship with her. We shot some projects. The feature came. And then from that feature is where that was really where people started to be like, oh, Andy, like he, he can shoot stuff, I guess. Like that was, <laughs> that was it. Cool. So shoot stuff. Shoot yeah. stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the answer. Like it, we keep saying it over and over, but shoot stuff that is similar to what you want to make. Yeah. And then people will think of you when they want to make stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like stupidly simple. Uh, and it's also weird now, like I would imagine you guys run into this, like life and work get in the way and it's like, well, I don't really go. I mean, it still happens every once in a while with friends. Like I go and shoot a short with a friend over two days and all that. And my, I'm very, I get resistant to it now. I'm tired most Mm -hmm. of the time. So like, I, I'm not that eager to do it. But then, you know, if the people are good, I mean, that's another thing is just the people. You get a sense and you're like, oh, I like, I like you or I like the, the crew. Or Do you think that you respond to material the same way you used to? Like if, if it was like, oh, this is a short that's all about bold choices. Are you excited or no? I, I, I mean, yes. Matt has a short that's <laughs> got some bold choices. All bold choices. Um, yeah, in theory, because that, that, that came up recently. There was a short that came up and the short was weird. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, let's, let's, and it didn't end, I, the schedule ended up getting messed up, but I did some of the prep for it at least. And that's what I was attracted to. But I would say, so, so yes, but honestly, it's more people now. Mm-hmm. It's that I get a sense for, you know, it's hard, it's hard work. Like, I don't want to be around somebody who's like, like I have no time for yellers. I got like, I have no desire to be around that. Yeah. That's another theme. People on our podcast don't seem to like yellers. Yeah. I don't think, I mean, nobody likes a yeller, right? I think. Yeah. I mean, no, but I, I do like someone who's bossy. I, I feel <laughs> like I've gotten, I think that there's a, a yeah, yelling is not okay, but I, I, he, you talk to crews and they'll be like, oh, so-and-so is so bossy or so demanding. <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, that's the job. Yeah. Like, you know? That's why I like Jason Mann from Project Greenlight. <laughs> and, my, and Matt doesn't like it. Yeah, if you made um, good choices, that would be different. But we should, uh, <laughs> we should probably wrap up. But before we do, we actually have a listener question that oh, right. you are uniquely suited to help us answer. 
So, Andy, we have a question from one of our listeners, Josh Basler. He says, hey, thanks for the great show. I'm looking to buy a camera with which to shoot some of my own projects. I'm planning on spending between $1,500 to $5,000 on it. However, the more I'd spend on the camera, the less I'd have left over for lenses, lights, tripods, etc. I was hoping to get something flexible and versatile that would allow me to learn more about working with cameras and yield reasonably professional-looking footage. For any bigger or more professional projects, I'll be renting high-end gear and working with a DP anyway, so this camera would simply be for me to always have something decent around to shoot stuff on and make smaller projects with friends. Thanks, Josh. It's funny. Yeah. This is like the question that used to be so easy to answer 10 years ago. <laughs> I, uh, I, I get this question all the time. Like I get it from crew members. I get it from friends. I get random emails like I, I, from you know people who saw a show I shot or, or a podcast I was on. Like I get this question all the time and i feel like i have a, a fairly i feel like there's a clean answer, answer. yeah a7s yeah. so the, mark two yes yeah, so oh, okay. so yes however i think now there was at nab um there was an announcement uh for a new camera and and and, and actually nowadays like the answer is so easy like or easy in that there are multiple options that are all good but like a7s but now there are the little brothers and uh, of which is like a6300 same sensor which now i think they're 6500 um so it's sony's so it's it's like i don't know if, if low end is the right word but like less expensive sony's because they do one of the big reasons is for for small personal projects you don't need a lot of light and so, like, you can light with practicals, you can light with nothing, um, and they really kick out a nice image. That said, they're also easy to mess up. And so, like, I always warn people, like, one of the features on that is S-Log. It's a very flat-looking thing, and it's easy to shoot that wrong. It wants to be shot. You want to give it more light than feels right, because in post, you bring the noise down, if that makes sense. Now, so that's one thing, but... Um, Black Magic, which is not, I'm not like they've 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 had um, bugs, I guess you'd call it, in a lot of their cameras. So like I, I tend to steer people like or, or or caution people. They just put out another, and they're getting much more stable. Their cameras are really looking nice. They just announced a new one that's twelve hundred bucks, I want to say, and it's a small sensor, but you can get an adapter for it. So. I would say, so it's, uh, to get nerdy for a second, it's a Blackmagic, I, I think it's the new pocket camera. I don't know what the exact name is, maybe pocket camera 4K or something. It has dual ISO, meaning you can switch to a version that allows you to shoot in lower light, and you can get an adapter for it to um, that, that functionally makes the sensor larger. So it's like a Metabones adapter. Uh, and you can get one to Canon lenses, which is what I'd recommend because those are cheap and they're everywhere and they adapt to every system. And that camera can shoot real high-end images and you can really get into color. You can real like you can, I mean, you can make that a B cam to an Alexa, no joke, and get away with it. Like, and that's the fact that that exists now for as cheap as for it $1, does. For $1,200 it's, plus some it's CAC. Yeah. insane. And then, and that's what I'd say, honestly. Oh, and it takes the Canon batteries, I think. Oh, is that true? That makes sense. Yeah, they're pretty good about trying to make their cameras universal. And they, they do seem to have worked out most of their bugs. It hasn't come out. It comes out this fall, I think. So, mm -hmm. like, depending on how... But I'd say get a Sony with an adapter and Canon lenses because Canon lenses travel. So, sorry, you said a so, Blackmagic with... So, well, so Blackmagic because it's not out yet. So depending oh, on if you want to wait. 
Um, but you can, you know, get a, a lower end Sony like an A sixty three hundred, sixty five hundred, which is eleven hundred bucks or around a thousand dollars. You can get. Yep, and then you spend, you get an adapter. So I think that's like four hundred bucks maybe for a Metabones adapter to take it to Canon lenses, and then, and then you spend your money on lenses, and you know, you get a, a workhorse zoom, a twenty four to one hundred five is like totally solid, and then you get one sexy lens. Actually, I take that back. Rokinons. Rokinons are the best bang for buck lenses that you can get. And they're manual focus, manual iris, they're cinema lenses. And you can, like, they are le- they are legitimately good. Best bang for the buck, I think, that there is, period. That's a, a thorough answer. I'll, I'll um, say one other thing about, I like the idea of getting a little Sony, like an A7S, or this other one you mentioned, this 6500, 6300? Yeah, A6500. Yeah. Um, the other thing I like about that is that when you level up and all of a sudden you're not shooting on that camera anymore and even it still works as like a B or C cam or like you can use it as like a hood mount cam. They're real small, so that's really handy as well. Um, but then at the end of its life cycle, it's just a nice camera that you have around, you know, so that just becomes your still photo camera for birthday parties and stuff. Yeah. And so um, it's that's really nice to have in addition to your phone or whatever it is you're carrying around as well. Yeah. And I will say I've had an A7S for three years maybe now, and I still every once in a while, I mean, it's less frequent, but I've shot a couple series where we're shooting on Sonys and there's a like a super low light scene and I shoot it on the A7S and it cuts in. I've like mm-hmm. I've shot proper shows where scenes are shot on that camera and it looks great. The series I'm shooting on, we shoot two FS7s and then have our C cam as a A7S. And and you can throw it on a gimbal as well. It's it's fun. Yeah. So Yeah. Are there any video cameras that you would recommend? Like ones that have a built in lens that you can like zoom in and out and have autofocus? Or is that not anything you've touched in a long time? It's been a long time. Like the equivalent of like the DVX, you know, the HVX. I know that there is an HVX 200. Yeah, uh, they have four, like the next the new version one. of that. Yeah, yeah, they have. But it's expensive. It's like six grand, I think. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I if you're starting, well, I mean, well, I guess the Ursa Mini Pro is, I mean, I you know, a fixed lens, I'd say no, honestly, at this point. I mean, maybe there's something out there I don't know about, but... Um, that seems unlikely. Uh, I think it's. Uh, I think it's. It's. It really is. You don't want a fixed lens. Basically, is the bottom line. Because then, once the camera dies, you nothing comes with you. You want a camera with different the ability to change lenses. When you say nothing comes with you, you mean that your Rokinon lenses that you invested in will work on other systems later. That's what you mean. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Like, and, and really, lenses ultimately. They can travel. Like they, I, I've had my Rokinons for years, and I, you know, I don't bring them on to big boy shoots, but like I shoot shorts all the time with friends. Still, like I still shoot tiny projects when I have time and somebody, and I have trouble saying no. I just shot one um, recently. I shot on an A7S with Rokinons, and it was and it was great. It was like it was. It felt weird at first. I was like, man, like I, I'm picking up all these stands and I'm doing stuff that like I've gotten spoiled with. And then, you know, by, by day two, I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. We're making a short. Like, we're cranking. Yeah. So if you want a free DP with equipment, <laughs> email Andy. Um, cool. Well, we should really wrap things up. <laughs> but before we do, we have a little segment we call Unpaid Endorsements. Unpaid Endorsements. Unpaid Endorsements. 
Oren, take it away. So this is an update to Premiere Pro. I just noticed, uh, just because we were talking about this, they have a new tool built into Premiere. Uh, it's like a color matching effect. And if you, it's basically built for like separate cameras. If you are mixing different formats, uh, it does a lot of work, especially if you're, both cameras are pointing at the same thing uh, to match the log curve and the LUT and all that stuff. Um, I have not tried it yet, but I'm very excited to try it because it is something that is just happening all the time on every shoot. You know, there's a drone shot, there's a GoPro somewhere, there's an A7S and an FS7. So it's a, a tool worth checking out. It just came out in the new update to Premiere. And then my second thing... Wait, I'm, I'm curious to see if you can steal people's grades doing that. If you're like, oh man, I really want my movie to look like Mad Max. You know, can you be like, hey, correct it to this? Do you oh. think? Uh, you know, I no, think you, know you can what? try. Yeah, I'll bet to a certain degree. I mean, there's a lot of other sure. stuff going on. But but you can, because this is becoming common now, is stealing LUTs, looks mm-hmm. from other things. You, I'll bet you you could bring a clip from Mad Max into Premiere, put it next to something, and it'll get you something yeah. in that in yeah. that world. Like, I mean, I mean, it, you know, there's other things happening there. But right. I mean, yeah. I've messed around with a lot of those like LUT packages where it's like, make it look like 28 days later, make it look like the matrix or whatever. And it never is even like remotely close. <laughs> yeah. Because well, you still have to shoot matrix footage is the problem. Well, but also like, are you starting from flat or log or rec 709? I don't know. There's all these, but, but what you're saying might be a little easier because you are giving it the final look you want. You're not just giving it directions on how to go from some, random starting point to some end point. Um, We'll see. Yeah. So the second thing, I might have talked about this before, but, you know, everyone loves to hate on Save the Cat, the screenwriting book. There's uh, a second one, Save the Cat Goes to the Movies, and the third one, Save the Cat Strikes Back. And I just find that that third one, Save the Cat Strikes Back, is it's just kind of filled with, like, uh, like help for when you're stuck (laughs) writing a screenplay. Um, you know, and just kind of these patterns that the writer Blake Snyder has found that like the, the first thing that happens in the second act is usually the opposite of what happened in the, you know, in the middle of the first act. Like he kind of has these goalposts and things. And even though it might seem formulaic, I find whenever I'm writing and I get stuck, I can just like literally just start reading any page in this book and it'll remind me to think about something in a certain way and whether it applies or not, I, I always find it like helpful to jostle my brain and push me in some a certain direction. So Save the Cat Strikes Back, just a book I really like to just read while I'm not writing in order to give me ideas. That's it. I love it. Andy, you got something? I do. I have two things. Ooh. Now, I'm, I, I'm assuming the brand isn't that relevant uh, necessarily, but there are two things that... Uh, I bought that are relatively cheap, and I love them so much. So one I call Pillow Desk. I don't know what it's actually called, but it's like a a flat piece of plastic, basically, that is attached to basically a pillow, and it's like a laptop thing, so you can put it on your lap and have a laptop. I do almost, I'd say 95% of my work in life, like emails, prep, script reading, in bed, on my pillow desk. Like I read my scripts and I, it's just sitting there and it's like 10 bucks maybe. 
and it's maybe my favorite thing I own. Like, I mm. love it. When you first said pillow desk, I just imagined you sleeping with your face <laughs> down on a desk with a pillow around your face. So this is less depressing. Yeah, Andy lives in a very small apartment. His desk is his bed. Yeah, and my kitchen table. Face and, planting. Yeah. Um, I, and I have a second thing, uh, which is a Bluetooth speaker that I was like, I had never had one. And I was like, yeah, this is useful. Like, I like to listen to things. And it's, I got on Amazon to just get one and I saw one that was waterproof. And I was like, why would you ever need that? I bring it into the shower with me in the morning <laughs> and I start my day, especially with early calls for series. Like I wake up at 4.45 every day for like a month, which I do not enjoy. When I can bring a speaker and just listen to a podcast to start my day as I'm showering, it eases me into my day so, well, I love it the most. Not as much as Pillow Desk, but it's up there. I have like my, I put my iPhone on top of the shower. <laughs> See, that's dangerous. And I blast, I have to put it on full volume in order to hear it. And then my wife keeps accusing me of being so loud that like our, our Airbnb guests who are directly underneath the bathroom are hearing my podcast, but... Um, but yeah, a waterproof Bluetooth speaker would help me, would let me bring the speaker inside the shower. And then you can get even louder. Yeah, genius. Well, I've got, uh, it sounds like the nerdiest of all of our recommendations. This is a Forbes oh, article yeah. uh, under the life hacks, hashtag life hacks section. Uh, the article is called Schedule Like You Have a Personal Assistant for Under $500 a Year. Uh, and it's by a woman who uh, was like a fancy executive and then left to start her own company. And so she's put together a list of a handful of things that um, helped her streamline her life and like make her more efficient and like schedule things basically. There's a few obvious ones, but it's nice to have them all in one slot and to be able to think like, oh, you know, maybe I do need an email scheduler or like an AI assistant, things like that. So the article is called... A schedule like you have a personal assistant for under $500 a year. Her top one is Google Inbox, which did change my life quite a bit. So I don't even know what that is. Oh, man, it's the best. I'll show you after the podcast. Perfect. Cool. Well, thanks, Andy, for coming on. We also wanted to ask our listeners a question. Uh, so please tweet at us or email us at justshootapod at gmail.com with your answers. And our question is... What is your guilty pleasure movie? So a movie that is known to be bad mm -hmm. by everyone but that you love for some reason. And we're not talking about like Troll 2 or The Room. This isn't like a movie that you like ironically. This is a bad movie that you like and are uh, slightly embarrassed to say. Like for instance, Andy. Legend starring Tom Cruise. Which I groaned when he told me that I groaned out yeah. loud. And you're wrong because it's legit. Directed by Sir Ridley Scott. Sir Ridley Scott. Scott. Uh, Tom Cruise, the best runner in the business. Tim Curry as the devil. It is very scary. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. It's beautiful. It's when I first saw that, it was the first time that I was like, oh, I think I want to direct. And I realized it was because of the production design. I mm -hmm. actually, at the time, I was like, oh, I want to be, I, I think I wanted to be a production designer. It's mm -hmm. just building that world. But yeah. Uh, mine is uh, the five year engagement. Uh, <laughs> that is I a love, bad movie. I love that. I love it. I've, never I've seen watched it. it twice back to back. Are you serious? <laughs> I swear to God. I, I think can, I might literally be the biggest fan of that movie in the I world. I can barely get through it one It's not time. good. And I, I saw like it in the it. theater. Yeah. Oh, no, I understand. I understand. Yeah. I think, yeah uh, trying to think if I've got one. You only like good movies. Think on it, Oren. Okay. We'll, 
Uh, well, thanks, Andy. Uh, where can people find out more about you when they want to stalk you on the internet? Boy, uh, I mean, I guess the, the only thing I really do is Instagram, which is film at, at film Andy. And you also have a pretty active Vimeo presence, right? Not anymore. It's been it's been a while. I've been tr- actually no, you know, I just did a couple updates to it, so I'm trying to I'm trying to be better about it. Um, so I, which I, is also film Andy somewhere. So really, film, film Andy dot com, film Andy. Instagram, Philmandy, Vimeo. I think I have a Twitter account that's Philmandy, but I don't. I don't really do yeah. that. Instagram and video are kind of your wheelhouse. Yes, for sure. Great. Uh, well, you can learn more about our show at Just Shoot It Pod or JustShootItPod.com. Uh, you can follow me at Mr. Matt Enlow. And me at Smitey Pileg and the show at Just Shoot It Pod. This episode was edited by Christopher Robert Gray. And our new producer is Madeline Rosewatt. And our webmaster is Ewan Williams. The music that you were listening to right now is by the artist Jazar, and it was provided by the Free Music Archive. We'll catch you next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, Bye. Thank you, guys. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.